My name is Logan Dixon, and this is the Monday Morning Megaphone. Hey there, and welcome back to the Monday Morning Megaphone. Uh, You guys are getting a two-for-one today. Uh, You're getting a two-for-one today, and uh, we are... Part of the reason we're doing it, part of the reason I'm doing two episodes in one day is so that I can kind of uh, get ahead on some episodes. That way I'll have more time to, to book guests. Uh, so we, of course, you know, we had the interview with Clayton Homewood earlier today. Uh, and if you're listening on the podcast, that was last week. Or if you're now listening and uh, you missed it, go back and watch it or listen to it on YouTube or uh, the Monday Mega, the Monday Morning Megaphone Facebook page, or on my profile, just wherever you're seeing it. Uh, go back and, and listen to that. That was such a good time, a good time conversation between me and my friend Clayton about the uh, John Newton Pastors Conference that's coming up in May. I'm very excited to be a part of that and participate in that with all those un- other wonderful uh, men of God. We're going to have a good time of fellowship and worship in West Memphis, Arkansas, Grace Baptist Church there at David Young's Church, who is helping to host the conference. We appreciate him, and we appreciate his people supplying the uh, uh, the chow for the conference. We're, we're going to have food there. Of course, whenever you get a bunch of preachers together, there's always got to be food involved. Well, on to the topic of the episode. What I wanted to do is uh, I wanted to talk about this idea that's uh, it's not a new idea, I guess, but it's kind of one that I've seen popping up, whether it's online or in books that I read or things like that. It's this idea, this accusation, that Calvinism is just fatalism. I wanted to address that um, and kind of put my two cents in uh, for what it's worth, and uh, present some resources and some arguments against the notion that Calvinism is just uh, mere fatalism. And then, of course, since we're doing this as a live stream, if you uh, have a comment or ask a question, um, I might get around to answering it. You can just leave it there, and it might show up here on the screen, and I'll talk about it. So I've been following this debate um, of Calvinism and Molinism between James White and William Lane Craig took place a couple weeks ago. I'm only about 20 minutes into the debate. Um, But I saw some of the comments, and uh, I posted some things. I posted my two cents about the debate, and I I got some feedback from um, Nick Ham, who is a preacher out in Oregon, who said that... uh, he basically accused Calvinism of being mere fatalism. And then I've been reading The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart. And along with, uh, along with uh, The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart, I have been reading Doug Wilson's response to it um, that initially appeared on his blog back in 2008. And then he kind of took those articles and made them chapters in a book that appeared in 2018. I think, um, but I've been reading The Doors of the Sea uh, by David Bentley Hart, and I have been going through here and making notations and uh, writing my own comments on it, and one of the things I've been, one of the things I have been doing is uh, I have been uh, 
cross-referencing David Bentley Hart, uh, cross-referencing his quotes with the places where Doug Wilson quotes him in his own book and responds to him. So if I go back and read The Doors of the Sea, I will be able to... Uh, if I go back and read The Doors of the Sea, I will be able to go back and cross-reference that with the places where Doug Wilson has responded uh, to him in kind. And as far as the accusation that Calvinism is nothing more than mere fatalism goes, I want to uh, use David Bentley Hart as a case study. Uh, I want to use David Bentley Hart as a case study for... Um, the well-meaning Christian, the brother in Christ, who sees the treachery in the world, sees the uh, evil in the world, whether that is as a result of the chaos of nature, such as what the Doors of the Sea was about, or whether it's just generally moral evil in the world. And uh, they want to speak to that from a Christian perspective, but they don't claim to be Calvinistic. Uh, they're probably aversion, uh, averse to Calvinism. They're probably um, they're probably adversarial towards Calvinism, maybe. But they also wouldn't identify in the Arminian camp either. They're not uh, they're not one of the two extremes. And by the way, for you for my Calvinist friends who are tuning in, um, if you if you are one of those cage stagers who believe that you've either got to be Calvinist or Arminian and there's no there's no in-between and there's no uh, middle ground to be found, I would encourage you to get out of that phase because you're not doing anybody any favors and it's really intellectually dishonest and theologically dishonest and philosophically dishonest because there's, there's a lot more viewpoints than simply Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, Calvinists, cage-stage Calvinists particularly, <laughs> Uh, they view theology as a linear spectrum. And over here on this side, you've got Arminianism uh, and, you know, all of the things that go with that. And then far on the other side, you've got Calvinism and the five points and the Senate of Dort and all the things that go with that. And they view people as sitting on one place on the spectrum. And uh, it doesn't matter if the, if the person in question comes from a Lutheran or Orthodox or Roman Catholic background. The cage stage Calvinist will always see them as sitting on that spectrum. So what I want to do is use David Bentley Hart as a case study, um, as someone who is not on that spectrum. He's not on that spectrum at all. He comes from an Orthodox background. And I want to take his observations, and I want to take Doug Wilson's response to his observations, and use that to kind of answer the question, is Calvinism fatalism? Short answer, no. But we'll kind of see why there's a long answer involved in that. First of all, um, in The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart, what this book is about, it was it's about a Christian response to... Uh, the tsunamis that occurred in 2004 on Christmas Day in Sri Lanka. Uh, those tsunamis did a lot of damage, uh, killed a lot of people, and basically, uh, I think it was, the, I don't remember if it was the New York Times, Newsweek, one of those big publications, they turned to David Bentley Hart, and they said, okay, we want you to answer the question, where was God in the tsunami?" And so he published a few articles, and he published some on First Things, I believe, as well. And he took all those articles and made them into sections 
uh, into this book, The Doors of the Sea, which um, is broken up into two overarching chapters. The first chapter is entitled Universal Harmony, and the second chapter is entitled Divine Victory, and both of those chapters are broken up into different sections. And those various sections, I believe, are the various articles that David Bentley Hart wrote to answer the question, where was God in the tsunamis? In, uh, on pages 25 to 29, section 4 in the first chapter, he goes over some of the various uh, responses. He goes over some of the various responses that he saw to the uh, tsunami. He, I guess what he did is he went online and he read various publications from various Christian perspectives about what their two cents were, about why the tsunami occurred, where God was in all of it, and things like that. And th these are the conclusions that he came to. I'll just read you, I'll just read uh, the bottom of section four on page 25. This is David Bentley Hart. He says, in truth, in the days following the earthquake and tsunami in the Indian Ocean, more unsavory than the spontaneous but predictable effervescence of village atheist cavils were a number of the statements made by persons claiming to speak from Christian convictions. So he's not at all impressed by these uh, Christian perspectives that came out. He says some of it was easy to disregard as, sym as symptomatic of one or another particularly noxious pathology. The sadistic bellowing of a self-described fundamentalist preacher in Virginia, attributing the disaster of God's wrath against the heathen and exulting in the spectacle of God's sublime cruelty. The cheerful morbidity of another preacher airily reminding us that some of the countries affected are notorious for the persecution of Christians. And so what he's so the first response he comes across is that of the typical, oh, I don't know, um, evangelical, evangelically minded fundamentalist. You know, this might be your King James only Baptist guy or whatever. Uh, but that's the first response he comes across. And that response is to kind of pound the pulpit and say, well, you know, God's wrath was poured out in the form of this tsunami because these countries, um, because these countries persecuted Christians. These these countries were uh, mostly uh, idol worshippers, and so God's God's wrath just came to a head and poured out in the form of this tsunami uh, upon these people. Now, my personal response to to that notion is no, because we see God's wrath ultimately poured out in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, then God's wrath has already been poured out on, on your behalf in Christ. If you reject Christ, then your wrath is coming, right? Um, if you reject Christ, if you are one of these idol worshipers and you never come to a place of repentance, then your, your wrath is certainly coming. Um, but, Wrath is either past or it's future. Um, there's some aspects of it that are present, but I don't think we find it in the form of natural disasters. Um, and of course, I could get into the uh, I could get into the statement from the Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith on wrath and judgment, uh, but I, but I won't do that right now. So the first response that David Bentley Hart comes up against is the is the fundamentalist, and he describes the the typical fundamentalist preacher as someone who is sadistic and cheerfully and uh, morbidly cheerful about the idea of God's wrath being poured out on these people. 
And of course, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's that's a genuine. Uh, I think that's a genuine perspective that some people have. Uh, some conservative evangelical Christians have about a, a disaster such as the tsunami. Uh, the second uh, perspective he comes across, he say, he describes the second perspective as a Catholic journalist rejoicing that God had sent the tsunami because of the invaluable lesson it taught us. It taught us all, and so on. And he doesn't he doesn't elaborate that. One of the things that really bothers me is when David Bentley Hart is describing all these perspectives. He doesn't um, provide any sources or footnotes. He doesn't provide any place where we can go back and check these sources. It's just that these are kind of these are the kinds of things he saw, and so he's recounting that. And so I don't want to discredit his experience, but at the same time, uh, I, I would like to see these. I would like to see the source material for myself. And so that's that's Catholic number that's Catholic number one. Essentially, the essentially the the five the top five responses uh, come from two Catholics, two Calvinists, and a fundamentalist. And no, that's not a walk into a bar joke. Um, so that was Catholic number. So that's the fundamentalist, and then that was Catholic number one. The next perspective, the third perspective, is the first Calvinist that uh, David Bentley Hart comes across. He says, a Calvinist pastor, positively intoxicated by the grandeur of divine sovereignty. Now keep that phrase in mind, because that's a phrase that Wilson is going to respond to. He says, a Calvinist pastor, positively intoxicated by the grandeur of divine sovereignty, proclaimed that the Indian Ocean disaster, like everything else, was a direct expression of the divine will acting according to hidden and eternal counsels. It would be impious to attempt to penetrate and producing consequences, it would be sinful to presume to judge. He also insisted upon the uncompromising literal interpretation. By the way, I don't know how you could interpret these passages metaphorically, but he says he also insisted upon the uncompromisingly literal interpretations of verses like Isaiah 45, 7, I make wheel, I make wheel and create woe, or even create evil in some translations, and fearlessly equivocal interpretations of verses like Ezekiel 18.32, where it says, It is not my pleasure that anyone should die, says the Lord God, or Ezekiel 33.11, It is not my pleasure that the wicked man should die. And then he moves on to the second Calvinistic response. Another Calvinist, this time a junior professor at a small college somewhere in, in the South. So I guess he's blaming this on, on the guy being from the South. Maybe he's not. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading that into it. But he says, uh, this, he says this Calvinist is a junior professor at a small college somewhere in the South. Archly, this guy archly explained that in the Augustinian Thomistic Calvinist tradition, so that's the, kind of, that's the kind of tradition this professor comes from. And then David Bentley Hart goes on to smugly call that a uh, chimera. He says, in the Augustinian Thomistic Calvinistic tradition, for the sake of argument, let us grant this chimera a moment's life. Ugh. Uh, and in Reformed thought in particular, this Calvinistic pastor says that God may have no need of suffering and death for himself, but suffering and death nevertheless possesses an epistemic significance for us, insofar as they reveal divine attributes that might not otherwise be displayed one dreads to imagine what those might be. And of course, Wilson will respond to that comment also. Uh, but 
as soon as you read that, you think, well, that's pretty much what Romans 9, uh, Romans chapter 9, 20 through 24 tells us. And of course, Wilson, uh, Wilson picks up on that as well and responds in kind. So that's so we got the fundamentalist Catholic one, Calvinist one, and Calvinist two, and then he moves on to Catholic two. Another Catholic who was manifestly devout and intelligent, but who on this occasion at least displayed something of an unfortunate knack for making providence sound like karma, he argued that all are guilty through original sin, but some are more than others. That our sense of justice requires us to believe that punishments and rewards are distributed according to our just deserts. That God is the great balancer of accounts, and that we must suppose that the suffering of these innocents will bear spiritual fruit for themselves and all mankind. Just in summary, here's here's a summary of the arguments uh, and what David Bentley Hart makes of them. The fundamentalist says that that the tsunami was God's wrath because of the persecution against against Christians Christians in those countries, and that uh, God's wrath was poured out on them because they they worship false gods. Uh, the first Catholics said that there's moral lessons to be learned because of this. Uh, the the first Calvinist says that this was a direct act of God, and we shouldn't question it. The second Calvinist says um, all kind of the same thing. He says there's an unknowable reason of God behind this, um, and that uh, through this manifestation of of the chaotic nature of the ordeal, we can learn something of God about it, which which I, I think is entirely possible. I mean, I, I think it's more. I think that's the most likely explanation, honestly. Um, and then the second. Uh, Catholic says that the reason this all occurred was because uh, some people are more wicked than others, and so they get them, and so they get their just desserts. And Hart made Hart made this uh, second Catholic argument sound like karma. I don't know if that was really the case because again, Hart didn't cite the sources on these, uh, so we don't we don't really know. And the last thing, one of the last things that I'll cover that Hart says before moving on to uh, Doug Wilson's response, is he says, as, as incongruent as the various positions were with one another, one common element was impossible to overlook. Each man, now this is important, each man, solicitous as he was of God's perfect righteousness, clearly seemed to wish to believe that there is a divine plan in all the seeming randomness of nature's violence that accounts for every instance of suffering, privation, and loss in a sort of total sum. And to that I say, yeah, and? And I don't see a big deal here. I don't see a big deal in responding that way, because if to... Basically, what Hart is going to say later on is he's basically going to say there was no reason behind it. I mean, those those are your only two choices. If you look at the at the way the world works, your only two options are to say God had a plan for this, or to say that God doesn't have a plan for it. There's no need for it, and there's no there's no reason for it. Well, that just makes that makes it sound like God is hands off. That makes it sound like God is the watchmaker who put the thing in motion and then walked away. That makes it sound like deism, and I am, and I am terribly ashamed. I'm ashamed of the pastors who will look at suffering in the world. I'm ashamed of the pastors and theologians who will look at suffering in the world, 
whether it's on an individual scale, national scale, regardless of what kind of suffering it is. I'm ashamed of those people who will look at all of that and say, well, it just doesn't mean anything. All because they don't want to sound pious. They don't, they're, they're afraid of sounding pious. They're afraid of sounding condescending. I mean, really what it is is they're afraid of sounding like an actual Christian. Basically what they believe in or what they claim to believe in is a God who has no reason uh, for, for, why there's even, for why there's evil and suffering in the world. They claim to, what they're claiming is, is that they believe in a God who doesn't have an answer for anything. And so they just say, well, hmm, there's no reason for it. It's just random. Life happens. No, I don't, I don't buy that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, look specifically at the response to this. Um, I'm going to share my screen here. And what I want to do is, uh, again, I'm going to look at the PDF of Doug Wilson's book. That is a response to David Bentley Hart's The The Doors of the Sea. I'm going to show his response to this. And through this and through an article by James Anderson, uh, I want us to see that um, Calvinism is not mere fatalism. This is kind of, I mean, I understand this is kind of a long explanation. If you wanted a short explanation, here's the short explanation. No. That's it. I mean, if you, if you think that Calvinism is mere fatalism, then you either don't understand Calvinism or you don't understand what fatalism is. And I'll get into why that's the case in a little bit. Uh, but here, let's, let's see uh, Doug Wilson's response to David Bentley Hart. This is the chapter entitled Narratival Calvinism and Storyless Readers. Now, uh, again, this is based on a series of articles that Wilson published on his website back in 2008, so whenever I go put this up on the uh, podcast or whatever, I will provide a link to this chapter that he originally wrote on his blog so you can see it. Uh, now, of course, if you're watching the video of this, you'll have uh, access to, you know, you, you can watch it as I'm going through it now. But if you want to go back and read it later, I'll have the link to that. And so the title of this chapter is Narratival Calvinism and Storyless Readers. Um, I'm just going to read the highlighted part. Um, actually, I'll just go ahead and, and, and kind of run through this. He says, in his fourth section, Hart begins to interact with certain expressions of Calvinism. The Calvinists Hart was responding to are represented but not named. Again, he doesn't cite anything. And since there are no footnotes to follow, I am puzzled over how to respond to this. Unvarnished Calvinism. Here's, the, here's one of the quotes I wanted to really get into. Unvarnished Calvinism is hard for some people to take. And because they have trouble taking it, it is exceedingly easy to slip off the point and represent the Calvinist as saying that he is not saying at all. Uh, uh, Represent the Calvinist as saying things that he is not saying at all. For example, I don't know if the first Calvinist Hart dealt with was really intoxicated with the gem beam of divine sovereignty or if that's just how it struck Hart. As I have been posting my way through this book, the comment section has been pretty revealing in this regard. For example, I might read a comment from some sturdy Calvinist friend in the comment section and then astonished watch as it strikes someone more of Hart's persuasion as blasphemy or demonism. So I don't know if Hart is dealing with silly Calvinists or if he's responding poorly to some standard issue Calvinists. And of course, that's this is where he quotes the uh, the thing that I 
that a, a thing that I read from Bentley, uh, David Bentley Hart's book a while ago. Hart says this as though it were a bad thing to do, which was kind of my response. And then here's where Doug Wilson responds to, this is where Doug Wilson responds to that section in pages 20, 27 and 28 with basically uh, Romans 9, 20 through 24, where David Bentley Hart says that another Calvinist explained that God may have no need of suffering and death for himself, but suffering and death nevertheless possesses, possesses an epistemic, epistemic significance for us insofar as they reveal divine attributes that might not otherwise be displayed. And of course, we see that. We see that in Romans 9, 20 through 24. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And here's the, here's the sticking part right here. What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even whom he hath called, not of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying, Paul, Paul is responding to David Bentley Hart's argument, right? Because this argument is not new. It's not new. And so Paul is responding to that question. He says, this is so that God can reveal his glory. Paul says, who are you to talk back to God in this way? Who are you to question? Who are you to criticize God? I think that's a better way of putting it. Because we have, Christians have this idea, Christians have this notion that you shouldn't question God. I think it's perfectly appropriate to question God. Because we, we suffer, we experience pain and hardship. I think it's okay to question God. What I don't think is okay to, is to criticize God because we have a limited perspective. I think God can handle questions just fine. He's a big boy. I think, I think the book of Job teaches that because Job questioned God. His friends questioned God. And how does God respond to that? Well, God doesn't get insecure. Instead, he shows Job the vast picture of creation. He shows Job the vast picture of the galaxies that he has created. And see, he never gives Job a firm resolution, but he's, he does show Job everything. And he says, well, you don't understand it. Of course, God doesn't come right out and say you don't understand it. But after Job sees all of this, after Job sees all of that, he comes to the conclusion that he just simply doesn't understand the world, the way it works. Um, he doesn't understand why, and he has to be satisfied with that. You have to, here's the deal. Whenever you encounter suffering of this nature, you just have to understand that you're not going to have all the answers, but God does. And you have to trust that God is quite more competent than you are. Wilson says on, Wilson says in response, after sharing Romans 9, he says, In short, in a world without sin and therefore without death, God would be unable to show and make known certain attributes of his, which Paul identifies as wrath and the riches of his glory. And of course it is, of course it is at this point that I will be accused of being intoxicated by the hooch of divine sovereignty, as will I, I'm in good company, as though God produced the Asian tsunami in response to a request from me on a point of personal privilege. Uh, but notice what Wilson says here. He says, look, on questions like this, all Christians are drunk on something. All Christians are drunk on something. 
All of us as Christians are dealing with a world in which the Asian tsunami actually happened, and we all worship the God who made the tectonic plates that brought it about. We differ over the reasons that God had, but we all agree that God had his reasons. The only way out of this is to abandon the central doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, and every Christian who affirms creatio ex nihilo is a Calvinist, whether they want to admit it or not. Man, that's a big statement right there. Hand-waving appeals to the mystery of created freedom won't fix anything. Are you trying to tell me that free will would have been impossible in a world without volcanoes and tectonic plates? And so he goes on to continue responding to David Bentley Hart there. Uh, and so here's what uh, here's part of what I want to get to in, in response to the accusation that Calvinism is fatalism. Uh, here's what Wilson says. He says, the Calvinist is simply saying that God's good ends include his good ends for every thread in the storylines. Nothing is left stranded or high-centered. There are no dead ends in the story, no remainders. That is narratival Calvinism, which storyless readers cannot understand. So what Wilson will say, I don't remember if it's after this or before this, but basically what Wilson says is that um, the issue is that that people who uh, people like David Bentley Hart and maybe I guess people who accuse Calvinism of being fatalism, what their big deal is they view the world as a clock. They view the world as a broken clock, and the world is not a clock. That analogy falls apart. Of course, all analogies fall apart at some point. That's why they're analogies. No, there's no perfect analogy. But what a more fitting example. What a more fitting analogy is for the world is that it's not a clock, but it's a story. And a story needs conflict. He says, uh, the world is not a clock, the world is a story. Is the Lord of the Rings broken because it has Nazgul in it? Is Pride and Prejudice broken because Wickham is a chump? Is Beowulf twisted because Grendel was twisted? If the world is thought of as a deistic clock, then I'm with heart. I would rather believe there are absurd remainders and irredeemable evils than to believe that the clock is running smoothly when it clearly isn't. Clocks are supposed to tell time, and no friend of truth will pretend the clock is telling time when it's not. But storytellers are supposed to tell stories, which is quite a different kind of telling. God is a master storyteller, and he does not put absurd remainders, pointless dead ends, and irrevocable absurdities into his story. He will bring all the threads together in the last chapter, no strays and no remainders, no oddities that the editor missed. All things work together for good in the story. Not all things are good right this minute as the second hand sweeps majestically over on. Wise storytelling is quite a different thing from having every cog doing the same, doing the right thing at every moment, keeping perfect time. Hart is really the victim of ill-chosen metaphor. Gollum makes the story go, and Gollum will completely gum up the internal workings of a clock. And so, I mean, there's things that one could pick apart about that for sure, and if, and if someone's got some opinions on that, I'd be more than happy to, to engage with you on that. But, I mean, I think Wilson's spot on here, though. The world, human history as we know it, is a story that God is telling and we are characters in that story. I think the best way I can describe it is an analogy that, that Doug Wilson uses in another work of his, Easy Chairs, Hard Words, where, you know, someone might ask, well, how much free will do we have? 
well, how much free will does Romeo and Juliet have? You know, the story of Romeo and Juliet written by William Shakespeare, well, how much free will do they have? Well, they have as much free will as Shakespeare gives them, and their wills seem pretty free in the story. And what we do is we look at that, and we look at that, someone might hear that and accuse me as a Calvinist of, you know, not believing in free will. And what they're doing when they, when they make those accusations is they're confusing the physical and metaphysical aspects. They're confusing physical and metaphysical terms. Uh, there is free will. It's, it's real. Free will is, is real. But divine sovereignty is also real. And free will fits into the cogwork of divine sovereignty. Um, and as soon as you say that, as soon as you say that free will is outside of, of the divine uh, workings of, of sovereignty, of God's sovereignty, then what you're doing is you have, a, you have an open theistic God, which is a false God. Um, I don't believe open theists understand the God of the Bible. I really don't. I think open theists have created a false God. I think they have created a false God to deal with the world and to try to make Christianity more appealing to secularists and pagans. Yeah, I, that, that's where I stand on the issue. Uh, so I'm going to move on now to this this article that appeared in the April 2020 edition of Table Talk Magazine. Uh, this article was written by James N. Anderson. Uh, James N. Anderson, uh, he works, his, his stuff uh, appears in Ligonier a lot. Uh, he did a teaching series for Ligonier um, over Islam, over what Christians should know about Islam, things of that nature. Uh, James Anderson is also a philosophy professor uh, for Reform Theological Seminary, he's he's written the book uh, What's Your Worldview, and from what I've seen of him, he's very he's very astute, very practical, very knowledgeable. And so I want to look at uh, this. This is a PDF of the uh, article. I saved the PDF so that I could make annotations where I needed to. Uh, so here's the article. He starts out by uh, using the illustration of Oedipus. Um, it's often considered, he says, that the legend of Oedipus is often considered the classic example of Greek fatalism. Troubled by doubts about his parentage, the protagonist consults an oracle who declares that he is destined to murder his father and marry his mother. Um, although Oedipus repudiates the awful prophecy, events cruelly conspire to bring about its fulfillment. Um, all his efforts to evade his fate prove futile. Uh, the Reformed or Calvinistic doctrines of providence and predestination are often charged with being fatalistic. Yes, that, that accusation is, is very common. And what Anderson does is he, he goes through all these biblical examples of, of ways that we see human will and, and the divine will of God uh, coming together, coming together in these various passages. Uh, biblical examples of God directing human actions to his own ends include the story of Joseph uh, from Genesis 45, 50, 20, uh, the Assyrian conquest of the kingdom of Israel, Isaiah 10, 5 through 11, and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus uh, from Acts 4, 27 to 28. And so then, of course, he goes on to answer the question, how then does Calvinism 
differ from fatalism. Um, shouldn't a Calvinist admit that Judas was fated to betray Jesus, just as Oedipus was fated to kill his father? We should know first that fate was understood by the ancients to be an impersonal force or principle that applied equally to men and gods. Just as the Greeks failed to acknowledge a transcendent personal creator, so they lacked any notion of a sovereign God who directs all things to his holy ends. Um, so first of all, um, I mentioned earlier that if you are someone who accuses Calvinists of being fatalistic, or if you accuse Calvinism of being fatalist, I, I made the comment that you either don't understand Calvinism or you don't understand fatalism. Um, and the reason I say that is because fatalism is a Greek philosophical pagan concept. There's no way to deify that and make it Christian. So fatalism is a pagan Greek philosophical concept that is very, very impersonal. It, it's whatever will be, will be, and there's no way around it, and the fates are conspiring to do these things, right? The fates are at work, and the fates are just impersonal forces. The fates are just impersonal, unnamed forces uh, who do whatever they or it wants, right? And so Anderson goes on to address this. He says, for the pagan fatalists, there is no divine hand of providence, no overarching plan of God. There is no rhyme or reason to the fated outcomes. The universe is a theater of absurdity and tragedy. Contrast that with the biblical worldview, according to which God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and all things work together. A second major difference between Calvinism and fatalism has already been touched on. Calvinism maintains that God determines not only the ends, the final outcome of events, but also the means to those ends. In other words, in God's providence, the means are coordinated with the ends such that the ends depend upon the means. Thus, God did not merely ordain that Joseph would end up uh, second in authority to Pharaoh. He ordained the entire series of events that culminated in that outcome, including the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers. We shouldn't imagine that God planned for Joseph to become so significant uh, to Pharaoh, regardless of how his brothers treated him. Fatalism, on the other hand, tends to disconnect the ends from the means, implying that our lives will turn out a certain way no matter what. And so what we have here is we have God orchestrating and ordaining the means by which these ends occur. And um, so to, to have an alternative view, what you're saying is that God has plans for human history. You know, just as an alternative view to Calvinism, what you're saying is that God has plans for human history and that we people, we humans with our free will and with our all of our power, we can muck up God's plans. And so what do we do whenever God is, is doing his best to fulfill human history the way he wants it, and we make a false move is that God all of a sudden has to change his plans on the fly to make sure that his outcomes, you know, come come to pass, come to fruition. Um, 
you know, it's like um, I was watching an episode of the Golden Girls earlier. I love the Golden Girls. But I was watching the episode of the Golden Girls where Rose's sister comes to visit, and Rose's sister is blind. And she's talking about how, even though she's blind, she's very independent, and she can do things on her own. Um, so she's walking around the house, and she wants to go into the kitchen for something. And they said, well, let us help you. Let us, let us take you to the kitchen or whatever. And she says, oh, no, I can do it. I'm fine on my own. And so she starts moving around the living room. And as she does, the girls are going in front of her and moving obstacles out of her way so she doesn't trip and fall. And they're all just scrambling to get all of these things out of her way uh, so that, you know, she can maintain uh, this idea that she's independent on her own. That's kind of the view of God that I think a lot of non-Calvinists have. I'm not going to say all non-Calvinists, but I think that's the view of God that a lot of non-Calvinists have. They think that uh, God has the God has His plans in motion. His divine sovereignty as, is at work, and we just kind of um, we can ruin His plans. And what He has to do then is He's got to fix His plans on the fly, so that things come out well, so that things come out to His desired end. And so what that does is that puts us really in the driver's seat, and it puts it puts God in the passenger seat. Uh, I used to hate it whenever I would see those bumper stickers. I don't see them much anymore, but I used to hate it whenever I'd see those bumper stickers that uh, say God is my co-pilot. You know, man, if God is your co- God's not going to be your co-pilot. He's either going to be your pilot or you're just going to crash and burn. That's it. And so Anderson goes on to say in his article, fatalism, on the other hand, tends to disconnect the ends from the means, implying that our lives will turn out a certain way no matter what we do. The contemporary illustration is provided by a recent series of movies in which a group of people initially cheat death, but their escape always turns out to be short-lived. The grim, the grim Reaper eventually catches up with them despite their attempts to avoid his scythe. Fatalism suggests that our actions are truly futile, now, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Fatalism suggests our actions are truly futile. They make no practical difference to the outcome. Yet that idea is entirely foreign to the Reformed doctrine of providence. Come on, people, get your information right. Our future outcomes most surely depend on the choices we make in this life. Again, our free will is actual. Our free will is real. There's no contradiction in affirming both that future outcomes depend crucially on our choices and that God sovereignly orders all things according, uh, sovereignly orders all things, including future outcomes and the choices that lead to them. Yes, God foreordains the actions of his creatures, but he also foreordains that their actions have significant consequences. A sporting illustration may help clarify the point. Imagine you're playing around a golf with a friend. Jacob, who has a habit of conflating Calvinism and fatalism, at the fifth tee, you hit a sweet drive down the fairway. The ball lands squarely on the green and rolls triumphantly into the cup for a hole-in-one. Instead of congratulating you, Jacob has a mischievous grin on his face. He says, you're a Calvinist, aren't you? Indeed, you reply, intrigued to hear where this is going. So you believe that God has foreordained all things from eternity, including that hole-in-one. Well, God foreordained it. It didn't really matter how you hit the ball. It was predestined to end up in the hole regardless. Jacob isn't nearly as clever as he thinks. By his confused reasoning, the ball would have landed in the hole even if you hadn't hit it at all. 
but clearly that's absurd. The hole-in-one depended on your striking the ball and striking it well. See, this is, again, this is not fatalism. The consistent Calvinist will say that, it, that God foreordained not only the hole-in-one, but also so that it would happen as a result of your hitting the ball accurately. Your well-aimed drive really did matter. Your well-aimed drive really did matter. Free will is actual, and God's sovereignty is actual as well. God ordains the, the means as well as the ends. Uh, the, the distinction between Calvinism and fatalism has, enorm has enormously significant implications for the Christian life. It means our prayers really make a difference, for God has ordained the future events will take place in answer to our prayers. It means evangelism is essential, for God has decreed that his elect will be saved by hearing and believing the gospel. Right? So we can't, we can't be hyper-Calvinists about this, right? We, we cannot just sit on our bums and and hope the work will do itself, right? Because, you know, I was watching uh, I was watching a video from, oh, I can't remember the name of the channel, uh, Ready for Harvest. I think that's Ready to Harvest. That's what it is. The Ready to Harvest uh, channel on YouTube is a great resource if you're looking into uh, different denominations and what they believe and why they believe it. Uh, he was doing one over the primitive Baptists. Uh, primitive Baptists, although they wouldn't call themselves Calvinistic, they are so Calvinistic that they don't believe in evangelism. They are fatalists because what they believe is that, you know, you don't have to do evangelism. Uh, the call to do evangelism and discipleship was specifically a call for the first, uh, for the first apostles. And that because there are no more apostles, there's no need to do evangelism or discipleship, uh, and so they don't believe in that. They just believe that, you know, if, if God will predestine people to show up to church and be converted, I guess. And so that's a fatalist. That's not a Calvinist. A Calvinist believes that God ordains the ends as well as the means. Understanding that God ordains the ends, uh, both the means and the ends, Calvinists can truly say that if we had not prayed, it would not have happened. If we had not shared the gospel, they would not have heard it. If we do not stand firm in the faith, we will not receive the crown of life. Yet at the same time, Calvinists will give ultimate credit for all of this to the sovereign grace of God. And that is the end of the article. Uh, the rest of this was just from the page that I downloaded from Ligonier. So, yeah, that's that, I think, answers the question adequately in my mind, um, and I hope it answers the question in your mind. So thank you for joining me on this broadcast. Uh, this is this is vitally important. This is vitally important for understanding the sovereignty of God um, and the difference between Calvinism and fatalism. Uh, so thank you for joining me on this edition of the Monday Morning Megaphone. Uh, next week, we will, next week, Lord willing, we will have Josh Summer on the program, and um, be sure to tune in for that. That's going to be fun. Um, that's going to be an interesting time. Um, I I have never spoken to Josh Summer before. I only discovered him because of uh, the interaction that him and James White had, and um, I really thought it was I, I really thought it was arrogant the way James White uh, treated him. I thought it was awful. 
Uh, so I'm going to have Josh Summer on the program. We're going to talk about divine simplicity, the Trinity, and why all of this matters to uh, churchmen in the pews, why all of that matters to how it works out in the life of the local church. Uh, so be sure to tune in for that. Uh, next week, if you are following the live stream, that's going to be on December 23rd at 10 a.m. If you're just listening on the podcast, then that's going to be a week from today on Monday. So thank you for joining us again on the Monday Morning Megaphone, and I will catch you guys later.